Welcome to another book lunch. That's the theme song. It's uh, the end of, of March, going into April tomorrow. And today's book is titled Generation X. And I am a member, believe it or not, of Generation X. And uh, so is the author of this novel. And we're gonna do we're gonna do a little um, you know we, we, when I do a book lunch I always try to do accomplish to do several things at once and sometimes I don't, I don't honor all of those things because there's only not only there are only so many hours of the day in the day um, uh, you can't get to everything but I try I try to try to you know mention uh, the most important things perhaps. Um, or at least the things that interest me the most, uh, which may not be what interests someone else. And this novel is uh, from 1989. Well, it was, I think it was published in 90, 90 or 91, which means it was written in the 80s, which means that in essence, it's an 80s book, end of the 80s. So it's a different, different era. And I'd like to make a few comments about our generation, such as it is. Ah, get in my chair here and take a cup of coffee, hope everything's clear. Um, this is the novel. I even had my um, post-its in there, post-it notes. Um, so Generation X, well, um, there are many schools of thought, I should say, before we get into Douglas Copeland, Copeland's, I think, not, I don't want to say underrated, but I think um, underappreciated novel because it's what I would call a hangout novel. And the characters of the novel, Claire and Tobias and Dag and Andy, they sort of hang out for the entire novel. And so it's a novel of um, a group of peers talking about art and life and, and anxiety and political things and pop culture and and they hang out for the novel. And there's also a little bit of a, a cataclysmic, apocalyptic theme because uh, everybody's anxious about nuclear war, and um, which, was a, which was a big topic then. And there's even some, some uh, plot points, such as they are in the novel, pertaining to that. But um, uh, what I want to say about my generation, uh, our generation, is that we're a real thing. Now, generations, um, these are my general comments before we, before we get in the novel. Generations, uh, of course, I, I, my disclaimer is, as always, um, everybody's an individual. So yes, every human being inside a generation, baby boomer, silent, millennial, zoomer, is, is unique. But, and this is the part that's more, more controversial, what I'm going to say. Everybody by virtue of being inside a generation is going to share many features in common. Um, and a lot of that just has to do with just objective facts of life. Like for example, the Berlin Wall coming down. Now for me or for us, that's, that was a big event in 89 and sort of the, the shift to a dual power order, world order, you know, the capitalist world and the US and the so-called communist world or those those countries, the, the Cold War and the fight between those, that shifted, you know, and people, you know, people didn't know what the order was for, for, for um, 
some years. Also, the 1990s, as has been pointed out by many commentators, was sort of the last period. And this is also what I'm going to say is a fact. It's not a matter of debate. Was the last period that the U.S. had anything approaching general, a general prosperity or sort of comfort. And, that, you know, people now are, you know, all sorts of commentators from all over the political spectrum are, are, are making note of this fact. What do you, you could say about the 1990s that, you know, these things were very, were, were good during those years, whatever suffering individuals may have had, the, the, the foundation of things was very, was very solid. And that's also why, incidentally, that in the 90s, there was so much innovation, you know, like the Steve Jobs and people like that, and, and so much explosion of artistic creativity the indie film movement and um, uh, Rick Linklater and uh, Tarantino and um, P.T. Anderson and, and all these, 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 all this creation was made possible because there was sort of a, if you will, a trickle down uh, investment money that made possible that people can create things in those years. And also there wasn't a world war, you know, it was a time of relative. I say relative because every, again, every era has its challenges. I don't want to I'm going to want to get comments from people saying, well, I was in the 90s and life sucked. And well, it's all relative, isn't it? But in general, it didn't. And um, it was a relatively peaceful time. Um, and so I don't mean to spend too much time on the 90s, but just to say that Gen X extras, we grew up with three TV stations, ABC, CBS, NBC, and a little PBS. So we didn't have 100 channels. We had three channels. And... You know, if you're, as I was in, in your 20s when the Berlin Wall comes down, that has a very different effect than if you're like two years old and the Berlin Wall comes down, or if you haven't been born yet, you're born yet to be born. You didn't experience it directly. So for example, for baby boomers, the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Jack Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy was profoundly traumatic for many of them. And also experiencing those as they were as young adults is gonna create a certain kind of mindset in their years to come in terms of how they see things. And so that's my, my modest plea for there being something two generations. The infrastructure that people use, are you on landline phones on a wall, just one phone or are you using computers? How are you communicating? Do you have letters? Do you, you know, how are you mating and marrying? All the rest of it. These are things that generations often share in common. Now, psychology, mindset. In general, I would say we Gen Xers were a very diverse bunch. Again, we're unique. There are all kinds of, but, but, but putting aside the differences for a moment, we kind of are, a, I would say, a kind of a nose to the grindstone one day at a time generation and that our focus was more, some people call it survival. I don't really call it survival. It's sort of basically taking care of business um, as you go along and, and trying to create a future for yourself, the emphasis is more on those, that, what I just said, rather than always thinking about the future and obsessing about the future. Or, um, you know, you know, a strong political activism. Those are, are more common features of later generations, I think, to a large extent, if I may, if I may be um, allowed some generalizations here. is always a little bit, a little bit of truth to generalizations. Um, but anyhow, I just wanted to get that out there. Gen, Gen X, we are real. The other thing about us is that there aren't many of us. We're very small in number, um, astronomically small. And that's one of the reasons why you tend to be overlooked. And we tend to be um, not seen at all and be invisible often. 
And, you know, because we have these huge generations around us, the people born in the 90s are huge in number and, and 80s. And the people born, of course, in the 1950s, the boomers, so many of them. And they tend to get a lot of attention and a lot of focus on them, um, rightly or wrongly or for better or for worse. And so there's a sense in which we're kind of middle children in a way. We were also, uh, you know, again, living in this analog era, and I can't emphasize enough the difference of the cultural social system then as opposed to now, by which I mean the 70s, 80s, and 90s, right, before the, the 2000s. Um, the system there was so fundamentally different. I keep coming back to this image of the wall on the, of the phone on the wall and everybody using that one phone and having to look things up, you know, at the library and having to travel great distances to track down a, a, a beloved or um, sought after uh, vinyl record, you know, for example, or, or a book or something like that. And there's that quality too culturally. And that's very different than the internet and the computer, which we are utilizing now. So I hope my introduction hasn't offended too many people and in, insisting that there is a truth to, to generations, generalization, Freudian slip. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know where to proceed. I think I could start with um, a scene from a movie. Again, we don't have the fancy, this is the side of the room for the books and everything, the piano. The other side of the room is when, you know, we're doing real visually oriented shows, which I'll be doing, I think April 7th, I'm doing a movie episode. So bear with the primitive primitive quality of the, of the uh, or the undeveloped quality of the technology here we have. One day at a time. If I could bottle the sexual tension between Bonnie Franklin and Schneider, I could solve the energy crisis. <laughs> Don't bogart that can, man. Are you retarded? No, I'm rhyming. <laughs> Not easy. Should I make it look easy? You guys better not be inhaling. Hey, Elaine, Vicky was just promoted to manager of the dinner. Shut up. It's not even a big deal. The old manager tried to kill herself by eating a whole pot of poinsettias. Still, I'm so proud of you. Wait. Okay, now that's, a, of course, a scene from Reality Bites from 1991. And, you know, Janine Garofalo, Ethan Hawke, um... Winona Ryder and company are hanging out. They're doing what the characters in this novel do. And they're watching, well, they're doing two things. They're consuming popular culture. And interestingly enough, it's dated culture. They're watching something from the 70s, not from the 90s or the 80s. They're watching one day at a time on the TV. And Ethan Hawke is making snarky remarks about Bonnie Franklin and, and, and Schneider. Great, by the way, great actors on that show. And in fact, I have a, I won't bore you with all that. And so that's kind of the thing is that, you know, culture was so, was so, I'm um, trying to choose my words carefully here, was so, I don't want to say restrictive because it was, there was diversity in the culture, but the culture was not overwhelming. So there was like one or two TV shows, not a hundred. And so everybody was watching that one show. So if it came up in conversation, kind of people would know what you were talking about. And so that's kind of, kind of, the, kind of the thing. Um, so uh, I think we should divide, dive into the novel. Now, this novel, um, see what we have here? 
we have um look at this well it's hard it's hard to um where are we here we have like glossary so we have he invented all these terms there's like hundreds and hundreds of terms uh that are in the in the margins you know it's sort of like a glossary or appendix and a lot of them are words Douglas Culpin invented, he invented Generation X, he named us, and he invented these, um, these, these terms, so mech job. And so the characters in Reality Bites and the characters in this novel do work mech jobs, which is kind of a low status, low, as he says, low dignity, low paying functional job um, that you're working just for the bare minimum of life while you pursue more important things, you know, when you're not working. That's a term in this book. Now, here's the interesting thing. This book is from the early 90s and Nick Jobs um, became everybody's future. So the thing they were talking about is like a, as a thing that the era became, you know, because of <laughs> that's, that's another, there would be another topic. Uh, it became much more general and widespread, except we have different terms now. We have terms like uh, uh, gig economy and things like that to try to sugarcoat it. Uh, a little bit, but that's just one term. But you, if you go through, if you just flip through the novel here, um, I'm going to try to give you a taste of the conversation. And this is from a chapter called Dead at 30, Buried at 70. And this is a kind of a, the narrative or narration of a, of a, of a person. He says here, and this is a, I mean, there, there, there are whole passages in this novel, people just talking very dialogue heavy novel dialogue 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 i went to this party i saw jill st john at the party or why are you such a yupp yuppie tobias tobias you know sort of the more um more dis disliked uh, characters in the novel because he because he made a lot of money and he's not he doesn't have to say the best character and they and they, they mock mock his yuppie them you know um etc but this example of, of the narrative style and just listen to Copeland's prose, because it's really, so this is, this is a blend of the voice of the narrator, whoever's speaking, but also a little bit conversational. So I like it. Ever notice how hard it is to talk after you've eaten lunch outside on a super hot day? A real scorcher? Shimmering palm trees melt in the distance. I absentmindedly sta absent stare at the ridges in my fingernails and wonder if they're receiving if I'm if I'm receiving sufficient dietary calcium. Dag's story continues. It runs in my head while the three of us eat lunch. Quote, by then it was winter. I moved in with my brother Matthew, the jingle writer. That was in Buffalo, New York, an hour south of Toronto and a city which I once read had been labeled North America's first ghost city, since a sizable chunk of its core businesses had just up and left one fine 1970s day. So this is a story within a story. It's a narrator and it's a person telling, telling stories. And so one of, the, one of the things they do is the characters in this novel go retreat to the desert where they sort of entertain each other in themselves with all these stories. There's the story of Linda, which is a, who becomes, a, goes from being a kind of a, a, 
this, I guess this is a girl or woman that had sort of a more materialistic existence, but then she decides she wants to have spiritual enlightenment and gives it all up and be, and goes to a, to a monastery retreat. That's one of the stories. So there's, there's, you know, there's many stories within stories. And so it's the power of storytelling is, is kind of a, kind of a big, a big thing in this novel as are these terms. So I'm just going to find some of these terms and see what you think of them. Platonic shadow, a non-sexual friendship with a member of the opposite sex. Okay. Uh, let's see what we got here. This one is really interesting. Bambification, the mental conversion of fl flesh and blood living creatures into cartoon characters possessing bourgeois Judeo-Christian attitudes and morals. Now that's Douglas Copeland critiquing Pixar before Pixar was a thing, sort of in a way, he's kind of he's kind of um, critiquing the entire animation with that one. Isn't that interesting? Uh, so, God, there's so many. Boomer envy. Okay, baby boomers again. Envy of material wealth and long-range material security accrued by older members of the baby boom generation by virtue of fortunate births. So already in this novel, he has Copeland's awareness of class inequality and injustice. Now these are, th again, in this novel, all these themes, there's themes of injustice and things and there's politics, but as is typical with Generation X um, and Co Copeland is that it's not, the people in this book aren't part of a political party and they're not on the barricades and they're not, they haven't joined the young democratic socialists of America and they're not, you know, they're not really political activists. They're more aesthetic people. They're more artistic. And they don't really necessarily want to overthrow the world or change the world. A lot of it is that they're just trying to manage life in an accelerated culture, as he says here. So from the point of view of Douglas Copeland in 1991 or 89, the, the culture was accelerated. Now, I'm reading this now in 2023, and this looks like a... Um, a placid, non-eventful culture, not at all accelerated. It's like I'm reading this like these people are hating down and telling stories. So it's all it's all relative, right? Perceptions like from them, this is the most accelerated, frantic culture. I'm like, boy, <laughs> they, they didn't know what was coming down the pike 30, 40 years later, which is the thing about art. So when you write a novel or a piece of music or anything you make, make a movie, you're always up against historical time. And so my feeling about that is the whole question of datedness. And again, this novel is incredibly relevant because it's talking about jobs that don't pay and giving a cute snarky term to it. Um, or talking about nuclear war and we still have nuclear weapons. That's still a threat. So I don't want to say that um, the stuff in this novel is all dated, but I do want to say something interesting about that. So snapshots, this is a snapshot of what people were thinking in the world of this novel. So if we look at it as a snapshot in time, in that sense, it can't be dated. It's always relevant. If you go to novels for, um, if you go to, if one of the reasons you go to a novel or a book is to sort of think, well, what were things like 30 years ago or 20 years ago? And, that's what historians do. Historians are interested in the past, interested in what do people eat, what do people wear, how do people mate, 
How did they marry? Did they marry? Well, they certainly always, we never say, did they make? That, that seems to be constant, I think. But, um, and uh, um, there's just all these, there's all these, these, these matters. And so you can look at it. So in a way, a novel like this, you could pick up this novel tomorrow and, and, and there will be something there for you. Um, I'm just trying to find some of the, some of the, um, so even, even when um, Douglas Copeland introduces a character or, you know, in a novelistic way, a fictional way, you know, you have a Clarissa, you have Claire, you have Andy, he does what novelists do. He introduces it, introduces them in the context of fiction. But the interesting thing about this novel is that it doesn't, it wants to be, it's a novel that's also a sociological nonfiction essay. And so it's kind of hovering between two worlds, the nonfiction, you know, um, ethnography of these people in the early 90s or in the 80s, which is nonfiction and also a work of fiction. Now it's interesting, it's kind of, um, I think it's kind of inventive to combine these very different, these different uh, forms of prose in one book, you know. So just as an example, Elvisa is Claire's good friend. They met months ago at Claire's doodad and bijou counter at I Magnum. Unfortunately, Elvisa isn't her real name. Her real name is Catherine. Elvisa was my creation, a name that struck from the very first time I ever used it, much to her pleasure. When Clara brought her home for lunch months ago, the name stems from her large anatomically disproportionate head, like that of a woman who points to merchandise on a TV game show. Now that's a good example of, you know, it's a character talking about another character and have this big head and I use up this cute nickname and the reference to the price is right. Again, always the pop culture references. This novel forms a companion to a novel we did recently on this program, White Noise by Don DeLittle. And in many respects, I think those two, these two novels have a lot more in common than I think people have um, maybe remarked upon. And, uh, and I think there's something in another, again, um, Douglas Copeland's pro prolific. I can't keep up with the guy. So my apologies, Mr. Copeland. Copeland. I haven't read everything you've, you, you've written. You know, Shampoo Planet, um, he, he's, he's, he's a, um, an installation artist. He does um, art involving um, computers and graphics and, and he, He's interested in the brain and the life after the internet. And, and um, I just, you know, I got to admire his, uh, the guy, his, um, his um, prolific as he is. And so it's kind of funny to go back to an early novel or a first novel of his and, and look at it, you know, it's kind of exciting. And, and then it's sort of this sense of timelessness in the spirit of the snapshot where everything becomes a snapshot, you know, and you can look at it and you're like, well, that's, that's what we were doing back then. And maybe some of it applies to now. Maybe some of it doesn't, but that's okay. And um, I'm reading this for the very first time. Why did I not read this when it came out? Well, because I would be hanging out with a couple of friends of mine and they used to bend my ear and read from the novel aloud to me back then. 
So people were so taken with this novel that they would they would buttonhole you and say, hey, Mitch, I'm reading this novel about us. And they were just reading these passages. And so in a way, kind of because I had experience with these folks, I never ended up actually reading the novel. So that's interesting how the impact of a novel, uh, you know, could be could be that powerful. You know, back when people were reading out loud to each other. Right. Maybe people are doing that again now. I don't know. And so I sort of feel like uh, it might be interesting to take a peek at Douglas Copeland himself discussing the novel in an old network television interview. We can find it. So bear with me here. I think it might be interesting. Back when he was a young 20 something. And um, where are we here? Uh, funny. All right. Technology. I think it's really fascinating to me how works of art have this um, snapshot quality because it's interesting. I feel, I want to say one more thing about that. So I think, here's what I will concede. If somebody says to me, well, Mitch, you know, some works of art have attitudes in them or beliefs in them that we today disagree with or um, are disturbed by. Okay, I, I can see that point. Yes, it's true. The past is vast and people thought lots of things in the past. And, you know, I can see that that sometimes is a thing in, in the snapshot, right? But even there too, one could have enough distance from it to sort of not have it be yours as you experience that, sort of push it slightly away and say, well, that was the case for those people at that time. Now that may not be much to concede. In other words, some people might say, well, Mitch, you know, you're, you're grasping at, um, I say grasping at straws, but you're trying, you're trying to, um, uh, but, but, I, but, but I think there's something to my snapshot theory in any event. I think there's something, something to that. And I think, you know, um, we're over here. Um, here we go. Douglas Copeland. It was a culture of divorce, peace, or culture of divorce. Carter. So. Your generation grow up without any barriers, boundaries, without any parameters. Were there no, were there not enough rules so that at least you had rules to break? Uh, unfortunately, uh, there were no real rules to break. The rules had all been broken by then. So it was, uh, uh, it was an arbitrary culture or no grounding. And it was a culture of divorce, Pacer Automobiles, Jimmy Carter, uh, and, and, sorry. What did my generation what did do you? to your generation? <laughs> didn't because didn't do anything. You didn't do well, anything. Well, I am I... the age of, of a parent of your generation. Right. So what did, did we do? And I refuse to say wrong <laughs> because everybody no. does something different. But what mm -hmm. did we do? 
Oh, okay. To create either the malaise or the search or the discontent or the uneasiness. Oh, nothing. You just won the genetic lottery. You were born at the right time. That's all. And 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 and, and there's. I'm so that I, I want to again. I um. This was this is from a show that I watched religiously in the late 80s, early 90s called Night Watch on CBS. And they'd have every really good show um, that, that just want to give you the context. Now, she's talking about her generation. She's a silent generation, not a boomer. So I'd imagine she's now in her 80s. This, I, think, I don't know. I don't, again, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to do, yeah. Um, so it's interesting. And so he says, well, you know, you won the genetic lottery, makes a snarky joke. Um, that, that searching quality that she talks about, that kind of not having rules, if that's how you want to put it, what if that's a good thing? Like, what if Douglas Copeland was able to write all these, all his books and that's novel because he did not start from his head stuffed with particular goals or guideposts and did that thing I talked about at the beginning of the episode of just taking care of things one day at a time every day and, and, and just sort of muddling through. And what if you, what if you made that your project, you know? And I sort of, again, I don't, and the people want to, they can label it. They can call it cynical. They could call it um, whatever they want to call it, but that's a, certainly maybe that's one of the degree to which we are a generation. If, if you accept my, premise at the beginning at the, at the outside of the show when I said we're a generation maybe one of our um our um potential contributions or gifts to the world if you want to put it that way is that sense of sort of dailiness the quotidian that I'm always talking about and taking care of that rather than big grand forceful flag-waving crusades that's that's not us. I mean, other, other folks are into that. And, um, and I think uh, some of the greatest art, well, heck, I mean, geez, I mean, I'm thinking of all these musicians now. They're, they're, they're you know, I'm thinking of, um, well, heck, Bill Evans says, you know, what somebody asked him, what do you do in your piano? He says, I just try to take things one step at a time. That's how he developed his playing. He, he says, I wasn't trying to do anything else. Very interesting. And that was in the 50s, of course, in the 60s. But that's how he developed his, his craft, you know? And that's just one person, of course. And Douglas Copeland keeps writing novels and does art installations and all sorts of things. And that's kind of the spirit of Gen X, I think, in a way. It's a spirit of, I think, of, of um, actual industriousness, work ethic, and creativity, and creation. And that's kind of our thing, is to sort of invent things, and try to and try to do do new things, and to make that our focus rather than some ulterior motive or some kind of um, agenda. And I think on that note, that's my Gen X episode, and I'll leave it at that and see what you think. And um, I'm 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 a, I'm a late to the party of this novel, Generation X, but here it is. Thank you. Have a good weekend.